And we have to be reminded because of a, a myth that is perpetrated often in our country uh, that, that we are in the kingdom of God, and we are not. It's that the kingdom of God is a, a citizenship that transcends all earthly allegiances without downplaying those, without discrediting them, without degrading them, but at the same time seeing that our ultimate identity is found in Jesus Christ and in the kingdom of God. And we want to be people, though, who don't live in the world against the world. But as we saw, the exiles are told in Jeremiah chapter 29 that while they find themselves in, in this place that is ultimately not under the reign of Jesus, they are to, to seek the welfare of the city. They are to build houses. They are to have families. They are to have friends. They are to work jobs. They are to do it all for the glory of God, but as they seek the welfare of the city that they live in, the culture that they live in, even in Babylon, of all places, that that could be said, that in the welfare of the city, they'll find their, their welfare. And so we want to lean into that, and we see that same call in Jesus to us as his disciples. And so we find in the book of Daniel great examples of what this looks like. And today we're going to read through Daniel chapter 4. We know as we take about a chapter a week, these chapters are long, and so it requires you to kind of focus in, but as you can already tell, we believe that the, the Word of God is very important. We're not here to just uh, have some sort of religious entertainment experience or Sunday morning fix, as we really want to meet with God together to be reoriented to follow Jesus in the stuff of everyday life for the glory of God and the good of our city. And as we see in Daniel chapter 4, just to go ahead and give you a neat speak of where, neat speak, neat peek of where we're going, is there's a temptation for all of us to believe that, that our lives are sort of like a, a, a stage for us to perform on. This is very, very tempting in a social media age, but it, doesn't, it really doesn't even relate to that. It's always been that way. It's for us to believe that, that we are called to perform on the stage of our lives for the praise and glory of God even, for others, and ultimately ourself. And this is a, a very enslaving mindset. When you see your life around you pulling off some kind of performance that leads you to, at the end of the day, receiving some type of praise, whatever that may be, some type of control, some type of acknowledgement. And we believe, as Matthew's Table Church, that, that Jesus is the only one who deserves that place, and that's really good news. It's very freeing when you no longer have to bear a weight that you were never intended to bear. It's freeing for you, and I just confess this in my own life, it's freeing for everyone around you. <laughs> when you step down off the throne of your control and you let God take the place that only He can take, it will free you up, it will free others up around you, and it will lead to us being a, 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 an example, not just an example, but a, a conduit of people knowing that Jesus is not merely true news, but good news. And so as we read Daniel 4, let's, let's read it with that in mind, and we'll go a little deeper in our time today there. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in the earth, peace be multiplied to you, it has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs, how mighty His wonders. 
His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they may make known to me the interpretation of the dream. If you've been here, this is, it sounds familiar. We've had something like this happen before. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me. We may wonder why he didn't go to Daniel first at this point, but he doesn't. He who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. So we're already seeing here, even in light of the experiences Nebuchadnezzar has had, his sort of uh, empty professions of faith that, you know, were a little off because, you know, he goes from, you know, wanting to kill people who trust in God now to kill people who don't trust in God. So he's, he's as we expect, just kind of reverted back in his time of ease to his former idols and gods. Verse 10, the visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beast in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the Holy One. To the end, that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will, and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw in you, O Belteshazzar, Tell me its interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you're able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you, and its interpretation for your enemies. So Daniel knows what he's about to share. This is kind of risky because what he's going to share is not going to sound like particularly good news to this king who has the authority to execute Daniel on the spot. Verse 20. The tree you saw which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and which was food for all under which beasts of the field found shade and whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. 
Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven. And your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it. But leave the stump of its roots on the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beast of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. Is it, it is a decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the King that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. That there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Nebuchadnezzar receives this interpretation and in it it seems there is an invitation to repentance so that what has been prophesied may not have to happen and come to pass. And yet he digs in, verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon and the king answered and said, answered who? It seems answered himself so here's a little glimpse of what's going on in Nebuchadnezzar's mind and heart as he looks out over his kingdom maybe the hanging gardens just a little backdrop there were two of the seven wonders of the world that were found in this kingdom and Nebuchadnezzar would have had a, a part to play in that and this is how he feels as he looks over these things is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. You shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time my reason returned to me, and 
For the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven. For all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. May God add his blessing to his word. Father, we ask you now to help us to locate ourselves. For your presence in this text. We've read it, God, and we pray now by your Spirit you would take it and read us. We pray, God, that you would, by your Spirit, now just break down any pride that's in our hearts the walls of defense that we have up right now, the defended states. The world, the flesh, and the devil would have us continue to live in, giving us our illusion of protection, our illusion of control, and our illusion of self-glory. We need you, God. We need you, Jesus. We need you, Holy Spirit, to work now. We ask you to do so, knowing you love us, and you want to give us freedom. Do it, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, my wife's sister was a, uh, a cheerleader who got invited to be in the Macy's Thanksgiving Parade one year. And this was early on in, in our relationship. I don't even know that we were married yet. But I remember sitting there watching on Thanksgiving morning the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. I'm going to assume that everybody in here kind of knows what that is. And, of course, the object of us watching the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade on that morning was to see her sister. And so we're watching it, and every, every scene is about looking. All right, are they going to come? Because it wasn't a prominent part. It wasn't like they were riding on a big float or anything. Uh, through the sky like the animals do or Snoopy if you've seen it before but we were watching very closely to find her in the parade as I thought about what's going on here in Daniel chapter 4 I was thinking of what happens when you watch a parade like that is you miss the parade you miss the parade because you're, you're focused on one person you, you, if you're not careful for us watching the parade because we loved her and cared about her, it's she was the parade. And so it had moved from seeing her in the parade to seeing her as the parade. And I think this is, this is how I know that I can live my life. And I think it's how all of us can live our lives at certain times. It's how Nebuchadnezzar was living his life as he was not seeing his story as him being in a story he was seeing himself as the story this is what pride is all about 
Pride can manifest itself in many different ways. It doesn't always look like some sort of maybe uh, in, imagined business executive who is arrogant, who is dominating. It can manifest itself in those sort of self-grandeur uh, ways, but it also can manifest itself in a lot of self-pity sometimes. Because as C.S. Lewis said, humility, the opposite of pride, is not thinking less of yourself. It's just simply thinking of yourself less. And any version or vision of your life, however uh, humble or gentle you may appear, or however arrogant and aggressive you may appear, any story, however your personality may manifest itself, that has you at the center is a story that is in opposition to the rule and reign of God as the Most High. And oftentimes these stories not only rob us of our own joy, but others. You can imagine again watching that parade, or maybe you were, you had a, a role in a movie as an extra. Maybe it was a really good movie, and you got everybody together to watch, but you were so obsessed that nobody missed that little glimpse of your back walking down the street, that no one else got to enjoy the movie. Every time somebody walks out of the room, you're having to pause it. Every time somebody turns their head, you're like, wait, 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 this might be it. When we see ourselves as the center, it causes us to miss the point. It causes others to miss the joy. And so the question before all of us today that I want us to think about it's been a long chapter. We've already read a lot here. But in this time that we have together, is who is at the center of your story? Not in theory. All of us could nod along, sign the paper, check the box. God is, God is the, the center of all things. But in your functional life, down to the level of how you interpret how others perceive you, and down to the level of how you feel and at your emotions, who is at that center? Who is your story centered on? And I want to, to ask this question, is how is that working for you? How's that working for you? How does that work for me? And how is that working for the others in your life? In exile, it is very hard for us to be pulled away from story that centers upon a God who is good, who is sovereign, who is supreme, and who holds all things together so that we are then freed to be the dependent humans that we are, who enjoy Him, one another, and His world, taking from Him all the life that only He can give instead of seeking to squeeze that from other things and people. Living in exile in this world pulls us into a narrative of the self-made person, the self-made man or woman, it pulls us into, into categories that offer no, no middle. You're either a victor or a victim. You're either powerful or powerless. And when we find ourselves falling into any of these categories the world forces us to think of ourselves in, there is a pride that grows. 
There is an identity that's formed that keeps us in the sanity of being a human. This will sound like probably the most childish thing in the world that could be said, but I'm not trying to be profound. It's just hard to figure out how to be a human. I mean, maybe that's just what discipleship means and what Jesus has come to do is to take us back to Eden and say, this is what it means to be a human and not try to be God. And this is really good news. And it's really good news because if you can be a stubborn, prideful person like me, even feeling that crop up as we gather here this morning, it's really good news to see how God could change Nebuchadnezzar. It's really good news to think back upon these great stories of transformation we read in God's Word. Nebuchadnezzar. You mean God can change him? The Apostle Paul. You mean God could change him? good news this morning to know we are not exceptions to God's power and grace and however entrenched we may be in our idolatries because he is the most high God then we can have a lot of hope today that we can move from seeing ourselves as the centers of our own stories but to see God's glory at the center and then actually actually grow into experiencing a little joy in our stories a little praise in our stories like we see Nebuchadnezzar doing here. And this is where our text begins today. We've read it, so I'm just going to refer to it as we go through. Is Nebuchadnezzar has a story to tell. This is verses 1 to 3. So it ends with giving us really this, this big line about God is able to, to humble those who are proud. But the larger picture of this story is Nebuchadnezzar wants to tell the story of how he saw and experienced the works of the Most High God. This is an amazing story of one who moves from a persecutor of God to a praiser of God. If you're like me, maybe sometimes in your life you're tempted to think, I don't really have much of a story. Maybe you think, I've lived kind of a boring kind of life. Well, what we're, what we're stirred up to see here, not only through Daniel chapter 4, but through all of the scriptures, is that every one of you in here have a story of the glory of God. You may not have discovered that yet, but every one of you have that story. Some of you have it through knowing Jesus Christ, and some of you, God's already at work in your life to lead you to Jesus Christ. But if you are a human being in this world, God has been at work in very particular and profound ways since you were conceived. amazing there are no boring people or boring stories there are simply those of us who at times are so blinded and numbed by all of the noises and images around us to see what we are looking at in the mirrors and who we are sitting by this morning again not to overquote C.S. Lewis but he said if you could actually see the reality of who you're sitting beside this morning you would be tempted to fall down and worship him. Why? Because you are in the image of God. John Calvin said, this whole earth is just the theater of God's glory. 
glory. I like that there's birds in here. I may can act controlling about other things and forgive me for that, but these birds remind me of who really is in control. Not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from our Father's will. Those birds aren't worried. God feeds them. He takes care of them. This is not a boring world we live in. And you're not a boring person. And you don't really live a boring life. We've just got to be able to see. There's some authors who have helped me learn to see. I don't know of their, all of their relationship with God, but one is a, a farmer by the name of Wendell Berry. Another is a lady by the name of Annie Dillard. I've been reading a book by her lately called Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. And it's just... Everything she sees. Learning to, to look at the ground and see bugs. Learning to have the humility to pick up a penny. As I thought about that, I thought about our own lives and our own stories. And how it's easy to get bitter over all that we don't have and all that's happening. But what would it look like for us to pick up the pennies of our own stories, of our own life? And to offer them as in praise to God. And praise to others. One person defined evangelism this week, which is simply the fancy word for sharing the gospel, is all it is is sharing stories about how God has changed your life, is changing your life, or will change your life. We can all do that. We don't need a program. We don't need a PowerPoint. We don't need a platform. It's simply, what's God doing in your life? And if our response is, I don't know, then that is a big sign that we need to slow down and listen and look and see. If you are in Jesus Christ, God has changed you. What's that story? He is changing you. What's the story? He will change you. What's the story? Nebuchadnezzar has one, and he wants to share it. Now, we've already seen he's a, he's a big kind of overreactor, and he may be an extrovert, but even if you're an introvert, you have a story to tell. It may just be you have a story to tell yourself a lot, or you have a story to tell one other person. But we need to live in the story. In a world where the story is often cliched and overtalked, what keeps us from being some type of self-focused, you know, expecting others to just to be wrangled into a world that centers on ourselves is what this chapter is all about. Is this is a chapter of our stories that are centered on God's glory. That's why we often talk about in our church of learning to share our story with Jesus as the hero. This is Nebuchadnezzar sharing his story with God as the hero. And it starts with a revelation of God. In verses 4 through 27, we see God disturbs him from his ease. In verse 4, it says these words. It says, 
that Nebuchadnezzar was at ease in his house and prospering in his palace. And in the middle of this ease, God disturbs him. He awakens him, as it were, by his Holy Spirit through this dream. And then he awakens him by his word through Daniel. This is how, the God, how God works in us. He pursues us sovereignly by His Spirit to, to awaken us to His reality. But then we need someone to come along with the Word of God and speak in that interpretation of what God is doing in our life, of how He's calling us, of how He created us. And if you this morning are in Christ, you, are, you have this story. You need to locate it. You need to know it. You need to be able to say, this is how God pursued me. This is how God came after me. This is how God disturbed my slumber. This is how He upset, brought upset into my rest so that I was awakened to my need of Him. And then this is who He sent to tell me what that was all about. In my life, I was sitting in a, in a, in a, in a church service and I heard the same message that I'd heard a million times. I grew up in a very country church where most likely every week you were going to hear pretty much the same sermon. That would have been just a very simple yet earnest presentation of the gospel message. And I heard it every single week. And one particular morning I heard that very same sermon again, but something different happened the Holy Spirit awakened me to not just hear this same message I'd heard a million times, but for me to locate myself in it and to come under a conviction. To realize that I thought I was at ease, but all was not well. And so I went to my Daniel who was my mom, my mama. And I said, Mama, I'm upset. Today I heard something I'd never heard before. Because there's a difference in words just going into your head and hitting your heart. And she sat down and she opened up God's word. And she said, this is what's happening. And this is how you're called to respond. All of us in here need to ask ourselves, what, what did that look like for me? How did God pursue me? Who did He send? And when we, reveal, when we reveal that and we repeat that and we share that with other people, it humbles us. It comes against our pride. Because when we understand how God came and worked in our lives to show us who He is, it was a great wonder. It was a miracle. None of us in here saved ourselves. Nebuchadnezzar was the most wealthy, powerful, successful person in the world. But he didn't awaken his dead and slumber to life. Only to God was the glory there. you've put your faith and trust in Jesus as the King of kings and Lord of lords, that's not because you're smarter than someone else. It's because of the, the kind grace of God. We need to know that story. We need to be able to tell that story. 
We need to repeat that story. But also we need to see that it's more than just how we were stirred up to it. But it's how it transformed how we view all of our world. And everything that we are and everything that we've done in verses 28 through 33, we see Nebuchadnezzar as he leans into this in, in sort of rejection of the prophecy that was over his life that was telling him, hey, Nebuchadnezzar, you are living in the insanity of believing that you are the center of the universe. You are living in the insanity of thinking that you actually are the King of kings and Lord of lords. In these verses we see, as we often phrase the, the way that we look at our stories, this creation. So if the story in the Bible is creation, fall, or rebellion, redemption, and restoration... We all have those sort of movements in our story. And the way that we can see this in Nebuchadnezzar is Nebuchadnezzar, in verses 28 through 33, he looks out on all that he has. If we could go to 28 to 33 there, please. He looks over all that he has, and he sees it. But what does he do? He, he takes the glory for it. He sees himself at the center of it. He looks at the things that he has in his life and he sees those as gifts from his own hand and for his own glory. He does not give thanks to God, he gives thanks to himself. Every person in here has a creation story. That is, from the very beginning, what did you see your life was all about? What was your purpose? And in a sense... In a false way, how are you called to perform in this world? How are you to live? Who are you? What are you to do? And the world comes in on that and it tells us, this is about me. But our rebellion is in the fact that like Nebuchadnezzar, we give thanks to self and not God. Or we rely on self and not God. And we can do this whether we're in a place of power or whether we're in a place of poverty. Self-reliance is not located in any one particular gender, any one particular class, or in any one particular ethnicity. Self-glory is at the root of all rebellion in this world. And it's insanity. The world would tell us to be human is to give God the middle finger and to say, thank you very much, God, we don't need you. But the true story of the world is that is the most insane thing you could do in the world. To seek to live apart from God. To seek to define who you are apart from God's definition of who you are. Because in Eden, you were given his image. You were given a great purpose. You mattered. You belonged. You were known. You were secured. You were loved. But this world is telling us all the time that we have to define who we are. We have to do what we have to do. And we were made for us. In my life, I was probably from an early age gifted to be a, maybe a likable person. I took a measure of pride in that at home and felt special and valued and you learn how to survive as a kid right 
you find out what works, you find out what people respond well to, and you lean into your gifts, and, and you get, you're safe now, you're secure. When I went to school, it wasn't that way. It wasn't quite a welcoming environment. I remember early on being discluded from sports. I would get sick easy and would throw up on command. People could provoke me to do that. And so you can imagine it's quite entertaining for other kids to make me do that on command. And super embarrassing. I also had some other embarrassing things happen in the bathroom department. I'm making you all feel awkward, but anyway. So, you just, so it was like, okay, I'm going to have to find a different way here. And in that different way, I, I found if I was going to live into this creation story of I need to be liked, I need to be accepted, I need to be included, then that would come through uh, telling funny jokes that were inappropriate and I didn't know what they meant half the time and through being good at sports. And those false saviors work. And here's the thing about false saviors. They work until they don't work. And even when they work, they don't work. Because now when you put yourself at the center, when now your acceptance is coming through your performance, through what you do, you have to keep that up. Because unlike the true God who gives us all good things and who gives us our center, false gods and false idols only take and want more and destroy and consume and leave you racked with anxiety and fear and guilt and shame until you become a monster. And monster, if you look up the history of that word, it just simply means unhuman, inhuman. And God in His grace, as we see in Nebuchadnezzar's experience, to redeem us, He has to humble us. To restore us, He has to show us that when we play God, when we seek to define ourselves through, through what we do, we are destroying ourselves and everyone around us. So we thank God that in this story, though Nebuchadnezzar becomes like a, a wild man, a beast, that even in that, God is at work to bring redemption. And so in verses 34 and 35, we see these words. That he looks up and his reason returns. When Nebuchadnezzar removes himself from the center of his story, notice his life doesn't get smaller, it gets bigger. Some of us are afraid to let go of the reins of our lives because we're afraid that our lives are going to just get, they're just going to be out of control. We'll lose what little pleasure or joy that we have. This story tells us that when we let go of the reins, even if we hold such powerful reins as Nebuchadnezzar, that God is greater. That God's grace is here to restore us. The only way that we can experience this is through a narrow door of humility. 
And if you have entered into the kingdom of Jesus Christ, that's a part of your story. You need to know it. Of the time when you experience what we might call a healthy shame. We talk a lot about toxic shame, but a healthy shame of like, wow. Apart from God's grace, I was like a monster. A healthy guilt apart from God's grace. Man, I did a lot of things wrong and I hurt a lot of people. And a healthy fear. Again, all these have their toxic sides. But apart from the kindness of God, I deserved only His judgment. But by His grace, He came to me. And how clear can it be that He's committed to our resurrection and not our destruction or our humiliation as we look only to Jesus? Isn't it amazing that the one who truly was the King of kings and Lord of lords, we read in Philippians 2, humbled Himself to become the true and perfect human? To be tempted in every way that we were, as Hebrews says, but yet without sin? To live that humble humanity in our place? To go to a cross to die for our self-glory and our visions of grandeur? And to suffer there way more than seven years of humiliation? But to take upon Himself an infinity of God's judgment as the infinite Son of God? To bring us into the infinite acceptance and love and joy of the Father. Though we see Nebuchadnezzar rising from the ashes here, we find our hopes not in his resurrection, but it's in fact that Jesus bore the sin of the world and yet he was risen. So the story ends in verses 36 and 37, not just with creation, fall, redemption, but with a restoration. Nebuchadnezzar now begins to live out a life of this newfound sanity of putting God in the center of his story. My story isn't over, and your story isn't over. Sadly, when so many of us think of our stories as it relates to the kingdom of Christ and to our relationship with Jesus himself, the only tense we have for that is the past. This is why so many people are put off by Christians and put off by the church, is we seem to have a a theology of grace that's only about what God did and what God will do. But if we want to be able to share stories that impact people's lives, then these stories have to not be merely of our past and of our future, but they have to be flowing out of a daily, life-giving relationship with Jesus where we always have a new story to tell about His grace. Let me tell you about what He did last week. Let me tell you about what He's doing in my life this morning. And we know that we've moved from humility to pride when God is at the center of those stories. When it's not our bitterness and our lack that we highlight as we explain and share our days but it's we talk about the real pain and the real sorrow, but it's always filled with a, a thanks and a deference and a dependence that spotlights the presence of God in our lives. We know Jesus to be a real person who walks with us, not an asterisk to our bad morning, 
or our bad days. Where we experience not just one-time gospel awakenings, but multiple gospel awakenings in our life. Where we hear Paul's command to be filled with the Spirit. It's an ongoing call to be submitting more of the influence of God and His kingdom into our lives. And then that shapes how we see ourselves. It shapes how we see our days. It shapes how we see other people. And as we share that, then we find ourselves not only changed, but others in our lives begin to change. We create a culture of God's glory and God's grace being the driving force. My own life, this has happened so many times, and I have all these stories here, but not no time to tell them. But just quickly, awakened to the gospel that first time. I remember being awakened to the, the wonders of God's word. Just being humbled like, wow, there's so much here. I remember awake, being awakened by the Spirit and upset to see all of my life in view of following Jesus and not just my Sundays. I being, remember being awakened to the truths of God's sovereign glory and grace. I remember being awakened to seeing the church as, as more than an event and an experience run by specialized people with mandated programs. And it's a big blow to my pride to know God's going to come and He's going to upset my rest again and again because He loves me. And He's going to come to you and He's going to upset the insanity of your life when you fall into these ruts of self-glory because He really loves you. And He loves the people around you. This is what it means to inhabit this chapter. This is what it means to walk in the Spirit. It means to realize that we are not called to be performers on the stage of our own scripts for the glory of our name, but to see God as the center of our story and to actually learn to experience the joy of a life with Him at the center. Father, we thank You that You come to us and show us the insanity of our own attempts to rule this world and rule our lives and put ourselves at the center. We thank you, God, that you don't show us that without also showing us the life, death, and resurrection of your Son in our place. And so, Father, now as we come to the table, we pray that you would remind us that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We thank you, God, that you tell us through the finished work of Christ that there's nothing a good resurrection can't change. We thank you, God, that you meet us in our, our pride to humble us, not to hold us, to hurt us, but to raise us up. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name.